0: All right, as you're having a seat, please turn to Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Let's read together. The law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Uh, W. H. Oden, the British poet, rightly observed that uh, grace is a risky thing. He made this observation in one of his poems. He said, every crook will argue. I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Voltaire made a similar observation. He said, God will forgive. That is his business. If God forgives so freely, why not sin? Apparently, Paul was accused of this. Everywhere that he went and preached the gospel, he offered the gospel so perfectly freely That people said to Paul, it sounds like you are not just permitting but encouraging sin. Remember from Romans chapter 3 verse 8, he wrote, Why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim we say, Let us do evil that good may come. Paul says, that is not what I'm saying. In fact, verse 2, he says, may it never be. Or if I can paraphrase, Paul says, I understand your logic, but that's stupid. Okay, that's like saying, you know, let me get more cavities to exalt the work of my dentist. It's, it's utterly and in, completely inconsistent with grace. Grace does not encourage sin. Grace does not promote sin. But notice as Paul gives a reason for that, he doesn't say, because if you abuse God's grace, you lose God's grace. Nor does he say, if you abuse God's grace, you prove you never had God's grace, but in Romans chapter 6, Paul is anticipating the question. He's about to give the answer. Why not continue in sin that grace may abound? If grace is that great, and as we sinned, grace increased even more than our sin, why not continue in sin? Or in other words, Paul's going to ask and answer this question. Why should you say no to sin and yes to Jesus? Why live a holy life? Why choose not to sin? Why choose to pursue holiness and righteousness and sanctification in Jesus if God forgives Like he does and paul's going to give us three answers. He's going to say well first of all It's inconsistent with your new identity. It's inappropriate with who you are for who you are Second you have a new freedom you can choose to say no to sin. So why wouldn't you particularly third reason because sin is destructive And righteousness brings healing So chapter six Anticipates and then answers this question. He's just expounded the doctrine of grace. God loves you unconditionally He loves you perfectly. He freely gives you the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't love you more when you obey and less when you disobey. He loves you. That's God's grace freely given to you in Jesus Christ. Well, if it's that good, Paul expects, because he's heard the question before, well, why not sin even more so that grace may abound even more? Why not continue in sin? He's going to answer that in chapter 6, and he's going to talk about our new identity and our new freedom, our new power that we have in Jesus Christ. In chapter 7, he's going to address the question, well, If we are new creatures in Jesus Christ, then why do we still struggle with temptation and sin? Chapter 7. And he's going to talk about this dynamic of the flesh inside of us, that pull that continues in us toward independence from God and sin. And how we answer that is chapter 8, learning to walk according to the Spirit so that the power of the Spirit within us overcomes the power of the flesh. So this morning, we're going to be in chapter 6 answering this question, why should you say no to sin and yes to Jesus? And Paul's going to give us three reasons in chapter 6. The first is this, because you have a new identity. You are no longer who you used to be. Read with me again, chapter 6, verse 1. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Paul says, sin is inconsistent with who you are. Sin is inappropriate to who you are. Why? Because you have died to sin. Note that he doesn't say sin has died to you. That's chapter 7. He says, you have died to sin. Your necessary obligation to sin has been broken because you are a different person. Note also that he doesn't say sins, but sin, singular. He's talking about sin as this tyrannical power personified that you don't have to submit to any longer. You were slaves of sin, but now you have died. And when a slave dies, a slave no longer has to submit to his previous master. Now, let me illustrate. Uh, SOS Ministries, one of my favorite ministries here in town, started... There we go. I'll take that. Cooper. SOS Ministries, Save Our Streets, started by J.J. Ramirez. He came out of a, a gang uh, background and a, dealing drugs, doing drugs. God just grabbed his life, transformed his life, and now he, he, he just lives in this space, and he helps people uh, find and follow Jesus down in, in uh, North Bryan. So I love what they do every year. They have a banquet. I try to go every year uh, because it's just super inspiring to see lives transformed uh, one year, I remember I went to the banquet and I bumped into my first boss from my first job. So, my first job was at Kmart. No, whoops, Kmart, right? Kmart doesn't even, they're not even around, right? There's no Kmart at Bryan College Station, but that was my first job, working in the garden center. And my boss's name was uh, Jose. And at the banquet, I bumped into Jose, my first boss, my first manager. And it was really cool because he doesn't work at Kmart any longer, obviously, because there's no Kmart. He's a pastor. Right, so he's a pastor now, and I'm a pastor now, and so we just start talking and exchanging thoughts and ideas. It was a really great conversation. Now, I want you to imagine, at the end of the banquet, if, I, if Jose walked up to me and he said, hey, Brian, the banquet's over. Grab a mop. You're going to clean up. Would I be obligated to grab a mop and clean up? No, he's not my boss any longer. Could I submit to him? I could. Would I have to submit to him? No. Sin no longer is master over you. Could you submit to sin? Yes. Are you obligated to submit to sin? No, you are not. Because the necessary bond of that relationship has been broken. You are dead to sin. Now, how did that transpire? Well, he explains it, verses 3 through 5. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul says, you have been baptized into Christ Jesus. Now, when you hear the word baptism, what do you think? You think water, right? We think water. Is Paul here saying that you need to be baptized with water in order to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. I would argue no. Let me walk you through this. First Corinthians 1.17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In other words, Paul says, the gospel and baptism are separate. Baptism is not a part of the gospel. The gospel is the free gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Jesus. You just receive it. Baptism is something different from that. Christ did not send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. But in Paul's day, when a person believed, they almost immediately were baptized. Okay, that was just the normal course of things. And so when a person believed and they immediately got baptized, then they associated their salvation with their water baptism. Because the two things happened almost simultaneously. Let me give you a couple of illustrations from the book of Acts. Chapter 8, this is uh, where Philip was transported in, in to uh, interact with the Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopian eunuch is reading through Isaiah, hits chapter 53 about the suffering servant, doesn't understand who it is, and Philip begins to explain who this is. So it says, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. So he believed, and he was baptized. There's another illustration, Acts chapter 10. It's where Peter was sent to preach the gospel to Cornelius, a Roman centurion, as well as his family and friends all gathered together. Peter speaking. It says, of him, that is Jesus... All the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit interrupted Peter and fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Peter said, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? Right. Remember, Peter's still wrestling with, wait... Gentiles, even Romans, can be saved in exactly the same way, way we are, by grace through faith. And he sees the Spirit poured out upon them. So do we know that they're saved? Yes, because the Spirit is poured out upon them. And they haven't been water baptized yet. But instead, Peter says, well, I guess we've got to baptize them, right? Because they have believed. So they believed, and they were baptized. And so when they th- would think subsequently about their salvation, they would tie it to this moment, this event when they were water baptized, so in the early church there really wasn't this category of person who believed and then was never baptized, right? Or who, who believed and then refused baptism because when you believed, you were baptized. It just happened like that. So imagine um, this. I've been in this space many times. I'm doing a wedding and uh, walk the couple through kind of a charge from Scripture, and then uh, they exchange vows. And they make their promises to one another. Why don't you imagine you're sitting watching a wedding that I'm doing, and they, they've exchanged their vows, and right after they do, they do their vows, normally they, they do the rings, and imagine they exchange their vows, and the groom says, you know what? Let's hold off on the rings for a while, maybe a week or a month or a year. You'd be like, wait, what? No, but, um, it's time to exchange a, a token or a symbol of our marriage and you wouldn't stop at that point you would exchange the token you'd exchange the symbol and then they go on their honeymoon and people would say are you married and they point to their ring is this marriage no it's a symbol of marriage it's a symbol that they are marriage married baptism is a symbol physically that we are in Christ it's a symbol of a greater spiritual reality. So what is the spiritual reality behind the symbol? Read again verse 5 with me. Paul says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also united with him in the likeness of death. Of His resurrection. That word for united with means in a sense identified with. It's a horticultural term. It was used of of grafting in. A branch is grafted into a tree. It has been united with the tree. Its identity is now linked to the tree. It shares an experience with the tree. We have been united with, baptized into Jesus. Our life is now connected to the life of Jesus, and it's true in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection. We are united with Jesus. So how is it that our identity has been changed? It's been changed because our old identity in Adam has been broken. We're no longer slaves to sin, and a new identity has been formed. We are united with Jesus Christ. So as Paul will say in Colossians 1.13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are, we are uh, sons and daughters of a new realm. And that's true of our being united with Christ in death, but also in resurrection. Read with me again, verse 5. 4. If we have become united with or identified with, grafted into Jesus Christ in the likeness of his death... Certainly we shall also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Verse six, again, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Literally, it's our old man. That is not a reference to your sin nature, as it's described. We'll talk a little bit about that when we hit chapter 7. This is talking about the old man, who you were in Adam. And he says that old man, that identity in Adam, was crucified. It actually literally does not exist any longer. You are no longer in Adam. You are now in Christ. You're in a new realm. You're in the realm of Christ. You're not in the realm of Adam. So, your old man or your old self was crucified for this purpose so that your body of sin might be rendered ineffective. And what he's saying there again, is not that your body is sinful, but that your body was, was a tool or an instrument of sin. There was only one voice you could listen to, and it was the voice of self. And it was the voice of sin. And so your body, in which you do everything, right? You, you eat, you sleep, you drink, you go to class or you don't go to class. You do everything in your body you think with your body, you worship with your body, you do everything with your body, and your body was an instrument or a tool to follow your own desires. It says, you have been now broken in your relationship with Adam, that's gone, and now you are united with Christ so that your body doesn't have to be a slave to sin any longer. Verse six, in order that, or for the purpose that your body as an instrument of sin might be rendered ineffective so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. You were a slave in Adam. You died. That slavery is broken. You don't have to say yes to sin any longer. Why? Because you are no longer in Adam. You are a new creature. You're a new person, united with him in his death, but also united with him in his resurrection. Verse 8, For if we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, if Christ died to sin and paid the penalty, and his payment was accepted, and God raised him from the dead, and you are united with Christ, then you are united in, with him in his death. Your necessary bondage to sin is broken. You're also united in his resurrection. That has future implications. You will have eternal life. You now possess eternal life. You will experience eternal life. You will experience a resurrection body, just like the body of Jesus, the body that doesn't grow old, and a body that doesn't decay and get injured, a body that is glorified like the body of Jesus, a body that is beautiful and brilliant, imperishable, undefilable. That is your future. That is your destiny. But there's also a transformation that now, right now, you can begin to experience the resurrection life of Jesus. Notice what he says again, verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with Jesus through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk right now in newness of life. We can live different lives because we are new people. This is one of Paul's favorite themes, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, So, why say no to sin and say yes to Jesus? Because I have a new identity. I'm no longer in sin and death and Adam. I am now in Christ. That is a fact, Paul says. That is who you are. Second, you have a new freedom in Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, because you are not under law, but you are under grace. Paul says, you have a new freedom. Sin is unnecessary. You don't have to say, to say yes to sin any longer. Why? Because you are free. Now, when you think of the word freedom, kind of like baptism, you think water. When you think freedom, what do you think? I think do whatever I want, right? That's freedom. Freedom is just I get to do whatever I want to do. Um, let me illustrate. Class of 27, anybody in here? Yes. Much better. Okay, I'm going to tell you, the 9 o'clock, man, they just fell flat. It was terrible. I'm like, okay, well, we've got four years together, and we'll work on that. But thank you, class of 27 freshmen. I'm going to poke at you. Well done. Well done. There's at least 27 of you in here. There we go. Okay. Okay. So um, this is not necessarily true of any of you personally, individually. In fact, I'm going to assume that it's not. But you probably know some people like this. Uh, Freshman year, they get freedom. Right, for the first time, I had, I had some I had one friend in particular I think of freshman year we met at fish camp, and um, he 's a super smart guy, really smart guy president 's endowed scholarship right so he 's got four years covered, room board tuition, all of it, just covered all four years, and he got to college station, got to Aggieland, and he 's like i 'm free, right? My parents are in Dallas, nobody 's watching i 'm just going to live however I want to live, and so he 's living in the dorm. Uh, decides, I don't have to go to class. Nobody's watching me and making me go to class. So he stopped going to class, stays up every night, just hanging out with his friends, all he's just eating pizza, going to Northgate, drinking beer. Just, he's just having a great time because he's free, right? No constraints any longer. And by the end of the semester, right, he was physically a mess. He was emotionally a mess. He was scholastically a mess. It's so like I got a 0.1. I mean, his grades just like completely in the tank. Spring comes along, he's on scholastic probation, which we we used to call it Scopro. I don't know what you guys call it now. It's derogatory, right? He's on scholastic probation. They're like, you better clean it up or else. And he didn't. It's like, I'm free, right? And he lived however he wanted. Got it to the end of the uh, spring semester, and he was no longer an Aggie. Lost his scholarship, got kicked out of a And He was done brilliant guy, because he was free, right? That's not biblical freedom. Biblical freedom is that God takes us out of our identity in Adam and our slavery there and gives us the power to say no to sin and say yes to the things that give us life through Jesus. That's actually biblical freedom. Uh, I referenced last week uh, Douglas Moo, one of the better commentators in the book of Romans, and he made this observation. He said, Paul's concept of freedom is not that of autonomous self-direction, but of deliverance from those enslaving powers that would prevent the human being from becoming what God intended. Freedom is the ability to become all that God has desired for us. That's true freedom. And what Paul is saying here is our necessary bondage to sin and death has been broken so we can now say no to sin and we can say yes to Jesus. Verse 12. Therefore, because you are new in Christ, because the old relationships have been destroyed and new ones formed, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. This is an imperative. An imperative means you have a choice. You don't have to let sin reign in your mortal body. Douglas Moo goes on, he says, Paul pictures sin as a power or master that exercises unbreakable control over all who are in Adam. Since tyranny is broken, however, for the person who is in Christ, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey us less. You actually can choose. Whether you feel like you can choose or not, you can choose. Paul is saying this is just a fact. So how do you do that? Well, we're going to talk a lot more about it when we hit uh, Romans chapter 8, in a couple of weeks, but in the meantime, Paul kind of teases it out. He kind of gives us a preview, and he gives two more imperatives about how we stop letting sin reign in our mortal bodies. Verse 11, do not go go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Stop presenting the members of your body as weapons to unrighteousness. That is, stop making yourself members of your body. Remember, you do everything in your body eat, sleep, drink, go to class, worship, everything you do, you do in your body. He says, stop presenting your body, your thoughts, your emotions, your physical being. Stop making it accessible to sin. Again, it's imperative. It's a choice that you can make, even if it doesn't feel like you make a choice. Now, why doesn't it feel like I have a choice sometimes? Um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but because I've lived... In College Station for a long time now. I've lived in several different places, and one of the things I've noticed is uh, right after I move, sometimes I-, I would get in my car, and I would drive back to my old house. <laughs> I just I'd get in the car, I start driving, and pretty soon, I mean, literally, sometimes I would realize, okay, I'm in the driveway, and I don't own this house any longer. I don't live here, right? But it's just, it's just habit, man. I'm in autopilot, and I'm not thinking. It's just because those neural pathways are grooved so deeply that I just go back to my old house, And I have to pull out of the driveway and say, I don't live here any longer. You're not in Adam any longer. But you've got some old habits of thinking and feeling and acting that just feel like they're just so much a part of you that you don't have a choice, but you do. Put it in reverse and leave. You can, because you're in Christ. But you have to begin to think through, how is it that I'm presenting myself to sin as a weapon, literally, a weapon of unrighteousness. Paul uses that word actually really intentionally. I wish it was translated better in New American Standard, but it is literally, it's a weapon. When he uses that word, it's in the context always of spiritual warfare. Second Corinthians chapter 10, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. You are in a spiritual war. It is battle. And you will be in spiritual warfare for as long as you are on this earth. You're not going to get to this point where you're just so incredibly mature that you don't have to battle any longer. This life is a battle, and Satan wants to ruin your life. He wants to destroy your life. And what he's going to do is he's going to lie to you over and over and over again. And one of the things that he'll tell you is you're not in a battle. Don't worry about it. You're not in a battle. You know what? Just be as good as you can possibly be. Just be a little bit better than the people around you, because Satan loves self-righteousness. So that's one of the lies he'll tell you. Just don't worry about it. You're not in a battle. The other, battle, the other lie he'll tell you is uh, you are in a battle and you can't win. And Paul is saying that's a lie because you're now in Christ and you don't have to say yes to sin any longer. So learn what are the habits through which you were, you were previously uh, presenting yourself to sin so that your members were weapons against you toward unrighteousness think about that think about that what are those habits of your life through which you sit, you make yourself accessible to sin second imperative he gives says do not go, do not go on presenting let me make one more observation uh, this is a present tense imperative what he's saying to these roman christians is um, you are doing this so please stop because right now you're not experiencing all of God's power to transform you in your life because you're making yourself accessible to sin. So let's, let's turn the corner. Let's put the car in reverse. Let's build new habits. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as weapons of unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as those who are in fact alive from the dead and the members of your body as weapons of righteousness to God. So stop presenting the members of your body as weapons of unrighteousness. Start presenting the members of your body as weapons of righteousness. The word for present is a word that was used in in, the, in liturgy. It was um, make an offering. Okay. Make an offering. Put yourself before the Lord as an offering. Same terminology Paul will use later in Romans twelve. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Actually, literally it says, which is your logical service of worship. This just makes sense. Take your body. Take your thoughts. Take your emotions. Take your relationships and make them all accessible to God. So we'll talk a lot more about this when we hit chapter 8. He, he's, he's alluding to this whole concept of spiritual disciplines, which I think we ha- sometimes have some wrong ideas about spiritual disciplines, what they are and how they function. Spiritual disciplines don't make you more spiritual. Okay? What spiritual disciplines do is they make you accessible to the Spirit. Okay, what, what changes your life is the Holy Spirit. Your responsibility is to make your life accessible to the Spirit. Make your emotions accessible to the Spirit. Make your thoughts accessible to the Spirit. Make your activities of your day accessible to the Spirit. Make your body accessible to the Spirit through these practices, habits, disciplines. And the Spirit changes you in the process. And so one of the things I want to challenge you to think about is how are you, through the habits of your normal day, continuing to make yourself accessible to unrighteousness? And how are you making yourself accessible to sin, because you can only, in a sense, devote yourself to one or the other. And the beauty is, Paul says, now you actually can choose. You have freedom to choose life. So, why do we say no to sin and yes to Jesus? You have a new identity in Jesus Christ. You have a new freedom to choose in Jesus Christ. And then third, you have a new reward from Jesus Christ. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Or do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed." And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, go back again to verse 15. This is the second rhetorical question. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Paul again says, I see your logic, but that's stupid. That's ridiculous. And here's, if I can paraphrase again, he, he says, okay, so if we're, if we now have freedom and we can choose and we're not under the law, that is the list of rules don't apply to us any longer, why not break the laws so that grace may increase? Paul says, may it never why? Because the outcome of choosing sin is death. Notice the words he uses here. Verse um, 21. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? The outcome of those things is is death. Verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. The end is eternal life, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Here's, here's where this is going. It's going to death or life. Wouldn't you rather choose life because you can, can choose life? Now, there's an underlying principle here that Paul is assuming, and it's this. You have to just choose a master. You, as a human being, you can't be without a master. You, you're what's described philosophically as a contingent being. You're, you're created, and there is a creator. So there's no such thing as, in a sense, complete autonomy. Freedom doesn't mean, well, then I'll just do whatever I choose to do, because when I choose that, I'm choosing my master as sin. Okay? Okay. Every person, every human being, because of our nature as created beings, we will have a master. Uh, Someone from my generation walked up after the first service today. You do remember Bob Dylan. You got to serve somebody, right? It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. You will have a master. Another commentator, uh, Charles Cranfield, made this observation. He said, the man who imagines he is free because he acknowledges no God but his own ego is deluded. For the service of one's ego is the very essence of slavery to sin. You just chose your master. You chose sin as a master. All right, so you, you just, what you do is you have the freedom to choose the right master. And you have the power, because you're in Christ, to choose Christ as your master. Again, back to my, my boss at the, at the SOS banquet. He tells me to mop the floor. Could I submit to him? I could, but I don't have to submit to him. He is not my boss any longer. That relationship has been broken. So why not choose the, the, the relationship that ends in life as opposed to the one that ends in death, right? Because sin and slavery ends in death. Notice again, he says in verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Now, throughout Romans, we have noted that there are, there are key words, uh, righteousness, justice, justification. That's the big word. That, that's kind of the dominating word for the whole book. You are declared to be in right relationship by grace through faith. But we also noted in chapter 4, the word credit or reckon was a key word, right? Righteousness is used like 56 56 times. Credit is used, I think, 13 or 14 times in chapter 4. You you need to, you're credited as righteous. Uh, In this chapter, death is one of the key words. It's used 15 times. Death. What does Paul mean by death? There are different aspects of death in the Bible, when we think of death, we, we almost immediately think of physical death. So I want to f- reframe this for you a little bit. When you, th- when you see the word death, right in the margin, separation. Okay? Death is separation. Death is not annihilation. Death is not ceasing to exist. Death is separation. If you think about physical death, physical de- death is the separation of the physical from the immaterial. Right? The immaterial man is separated from the physical man. That's death. It's an unnatural state for humankind. We were made for life. So that's physical death. There's also an aspect of spiritual death that we experience because we're born into this world in Adam. So Paul says in Ephesians 2, we're born dead. We're born with physical life, but we're born spiritually separated from God. We're outside of the life of God. Our spirit is separated from the spirit of God. If that condition continues and a person says no to Jesus, that condition becomes permanent. That's eternal death, eternal separation. But Christians can experience death. Every time we sin, we experience a separation in the intimacy of our relationship with God every single time. And so he says, the wages of sin is death, right? The recompense, the payment back for sin is death. Sin always leads to death in some form or fashion. The outcome, or the telos in Greek, the end, the cul-de-sac in which you are dri- that you're driving into if you pursue sin is death. What does that death look like? Well, he says verse uh, 21, what benefit or fruit were you then deriving from the things of which now you are ashamed? The fruit of death and sin and unrighteousness is shame. Verse 19 for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, sin leads to more sin, leads to more sin, leads to more separation, leads to a greater experience of death, or separation leads to greater shame. That's true of everyone. It's, and what Paul is talking about here is that's true uh, in the believer's life. And it happens often slowly and imperceptibly. Let me illustrate um, On one of my backpacking trips with my dad, we, uh, this is before uh, GPS units, right? We got a map, we got a compass, and we got the stars, right? So it's not quite as accurate as uh, satellite GPS, which is super cool, but the batteries don't run out. So we've got a map, we've got a compass, we've got the stars, and we're walking down the trail, we're looking at our map, and we missed uh, a fork in the trail. And I know that we missed it because we eventually had to go back and find it again. And what we, we realized was it was really subtle. There was another trail that just kind of went off to the other side. And the two trails traveled kind of parallel for a while. And the divergence was really slow. But after we had walked on this trail for two hours, the divergence was great. We were miles from where we wanted to be because we made a small decision that didn't seem to have a dramatic effect Immediately, but eventually it did. So Paul says sin leads to lawlessness, which leads to further lawlessness, which leads to greater lawlessness, which bears the fruit of shame and guilt. So I would say to you keep really short accounts with God. As soon as there's just a little spark of conviction, go back on to right trail. Why? Because sin leads to death and more death and more separation. On the other hand, righteousness leads to life. Verse 19, for I'm speaking in human terms because the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in In sanctification and life and eternal life and hope and peace and all the good that God has for you. This week, Jacob Smith said this to me. He said, Sin starts with reward and ends with sacrifice. Sanctification starts with sacrifice and ends in reward. Let me say that again. I thought that was really good. He said, Sin starts with reward and ends with sacrifice. Sanctification starts with sacrifice and ends in reward. So, of course, temptation and sin has has immediate appeal. Otherwise, we would never choose sin. So think back in the garden. When when Eve looked at the the fruit, it says the fruit was um, a delight to the eyes. It wasn't a gnarly, nasty looking piece of fruit. It wasn't like a lump of dirt or clay that you wouldn't want to sink your teeth into. There's something just really appealing about it. And so sin has this inherent appeal or we would never choose toward it because it's offering us something. And the challenge with temptation and sin is that there's an internal reinforcing mechanism. There's a moment of pleasure. Sin offers a reward at the beginning, but then it leads to death. But it offers a reward, and that reward is reinforcing the problem is you get less reward, and you have to make more sacrifice. And then you get less reward, and you have to make more sacrifice. And you get less reward, and you're making more sacrifice. And the consequences are greater, and they're greater, and they're greater. And you're experiencing more and more and more death. And so you keep short accounts with God so you can get back on the trail of life and righteousness and peace and all that God has designed for your life. Because you can. And this is what you are designed for. So, a uh, couple thoughts for application. Uh, the first, consider who you are. The second, present yourself to God. Read with me in verse 11, chapter 6. Paul says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Even so, and here he brings back that word reckon, legizemi, reckon it, consider it, because it's true. Put, put it in the, in, in the asset column. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. That is Paul saying, you are dead to sin, and you are alive to God. And I want you to think about that. So he starts the chapter with, do you not know? Have you never heard this, or don't you remember that you are in fact dead to sin? Sin may not be dead to you, talked about it in chapter 7, but you are dead to sin. You don't have to say yes to sin any longer. Instead, you are alive to God through Jesus Christ. Why? Because you've been united with him. Your life is now bound up with the life of Jesus Christ. You're bound up with him in his death which broke your necessary bondage to sin. You're united with him in resurrection which means not only do you have eternal life but you have the power of God's spirit living in you. I want you to think about this. Reckon on it because it is true. Even if you don't feel it this morning, it is true. As I was reflecting myself on this Uh, Just just this morning, I was thinking about um, Juneteenth has just profound spiritual implications. So slaves were emancipated with the Emancipation Proclamation, but they didn't hear about it until two years later in the state of Texas. And they didn't begin to experience it until Union soldiers showed up in Galveston and announced, you're free. You're free. And then The proclamation was made, it was factually true, but it took time for many of them to begin to experience the fact that they were no longer slaves. And so you have to start somewhere, and the start is with your understanding and acknowledgement that you are not a slave of sin. And I want you to think about that this week, and I want you to meditate on that this week. I want to challenge you to read Romans chapter 6 this week. And I want you to make observations and I want you to, to memorize a few of the verses and I want you to let this truth just, just just settle into your heart and mind. As you get in your car and you find you're in your old driveway and this house doesn't belong to you any longer, I want you to remember, put it in reverse and back up and go to where you are and, 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 and where you live and who you belong to. So present yourself, right? Think about your habits of your life through which you're making yourself accessible to sin. And think about the habits of your life that can make you accessible to righteousness. Think about the old driveways you're driving into and why are you driving into those? And think about where you actually belong and the habits of your life that will get you to the life that God has for you because you are new in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that even this week, you would reshape our, our minds, the way that we think of ourselves, the way that we feel about ourselves, uh, what we do with ourselves, that you would be in that, or continue that process of, of reshaping us. I pray, Father, that we would actually believe truth about who we are, and I pray, Father, that for each and every one of us, we would experience a new level of, of freedom and joy and power because we are new in Jesus Christ.